This is episode 359 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are Active Killer, Pre-Attack Behavior, and Survival Cash, How Much Do You Need? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. If you'd like to get some more information, click on the link in the show notes or come on over to the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. I also want to remind you that this Thursday on Facebook Live, I'm going to be interviewing Mick Rowland of uh, MickRowland.com. And it's really, it's Mick-Rowland.com. And we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the power of community. And that's one of the things that always comes up in the preparedness community, right? We all, we're always talking about you know, what is it going to look like when the poop hits the fan? I think everyone realizes that uh, being a lone wolf or even your family being, you know, just your four and no more is probably not the way to go. So how do you go about building community? We're going to talk a little bit about that and, uh, you know, where he's coming from. And uh, so I'm looking, really looking forward to that. That's going to be eight o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time on the Prepper Website Facebook group. And you can get to it uh, from many different ways. Uh, I'm going to link to it in the show notes as well as you can just come on over to any of the websites and it'll get you over there. Or you can just go to Facebook and and search Prepper Website and uh, definitely you'll see it. But that'll be 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So I'm hoping that you'll uh, be able to come over there and uh, join us for that one. All right, our first article comes to us from ActiveResponseTraining.net, and uh, this article is entitled Active Killer Pre-Attack Behavior. So Greg is actually highlighting some uh, information that a recent FBI report mentioned, and so uh, I think this is interesting stuff, and definitely in the world that we live in and all the craziness that's out there, uh, some of these things are that we should be taking into account and kind of keep them in the back of our mind. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. Last week, the FBI posted their study of the pre-attack behaviors of active shooters in the United States from 2000 to 2013. The study is 30 pages long and well worth the time to read if you're interested in the subject matter. This study is different from others because the FBI focused on the 63 shootings out of a total of 170 during the 14-year period that had the most official investigative material. They used only police investigation files and only looked at the cases where an in-depth investigation of the subject's background was included. This study examined the killer's demographic characteristics, why the killer committed the crime, and what warning signs the killer provided before the attack. It's actually a pretty well-done piece of research. I realize that for many of you, reading 30 pages of material is the intellectual equivalent of Chinese water torture. For you types, I will summarize the important points below. So the first point is this. Most killers obtained their guns legally. According to a Daily Mail summary of the report, quote, 
a combined 75% of suspects obtained their firearms legally for the purpose of the attacks, either by already owning guns, that was 35%, or purchasing them, 40%, to carry out their atrocities. Others stole, robbed, or borrowed guns, end quote. This tells us that the additional background checks or waiting periods to buy guns aren't likely to dramatically reduce the number of attacks. Another point, as I've previously written, active killers spend a long time planning their attacks. 77% of killers plan for at least a week. Most killers plan for one to two month period before their attacks. We have to catch more of these events during this obvious planning stage if we want to be effective at preventing these things. The next point. Only 25% of killers had been previously diagnosed with a mental illness. There may be certainly some undiagnosed mental problems among the remaining killers, but this statistic really shoots down the idea that psychiatric drugs are causing all of these shootings. Next point. Shooters generally displayed recognizable warning signs before the attack. According to a summary at thestar.com, quote, the FBI study found that on average, each active shooter it examined displayed four to five concerning behaviors over time. About one in three shooters had made threats or confronted people they later targeted. More than half of them revealed their intentions to do something violent, a phenomenon called leakage. The study's authors write that there was no single warning sign, checklist, or algorithm for assessing behavior that suggests a potential rampage shooter. But they say the study is meant in part to help members of the public keep an eye out for warning signs. One of the biggest findings for me is that there was one person in every active shooter's life who noticed some sort of concerning behavior said Sarah Cron of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, the study's third author. Most of them had multiple concerning behaviors between four and five. These were people who were already known to be struggling a little bit. There are actually some signs out there that people can see. The warning signs include threats and physical aggression, and the study found that most of the shooters had a history of acting in an abusive, harassing, or oppressive way. Others had abused their intimate partners or stalked people, highlighting again the reoccurrence of domestic violence in the lives of shooters before their violent attacks in public places, end quote. So, I mean, it goes a lot to say there um, that there's signs out there and we should be paying attention to that, um, which kind of bleeds into this next one here. Um, at least one person in every event studied noted concerning behavior on the part of the suspect before the attack. Only 41% of those people reported the behaviors to law enforcement. Given law enforcement's historic lack of following up on these complaints, as well as the legitimate legal obstacles that impede such an investigation, I'm not sure I know what to do with this information. I'd like to see more people report these killers during their planning stages, but I'm pessimistic that many police agencies wouldn't or couldn't do anything about the complaint. And I understand how that could be a real, you know, touchy situation there, legal, you know, situation where you have cops, you know, checking up on someone because someone has called uh, in on on them. There's no way that you could, po you know, possibly 
check every person that has ever you know called in I and mean, there's some people that are, would call everybody in right and so cops would be chasing down uh, every single one of those leads but you know there should be some some way that we can look at the signs right um, at least um, if if you are someone really really close to someone and you're able to see some of these signs definitely um, you know that might be something you at least share with someone else that that could possibly um, and I, I don't even know. I, again, I guess like with with Greg here, uh, there's not too much you can do with that. You know, it's it's like uh, you're you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't on on that one. Maybe you could you could protect yourself a little bit more and be on the lookout a little bit more. Definitely. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and go on to the next one. Most of the active killer attacks happened in gun-free zones. Check out the concurrent CPRC study not related to the above FBI publication for more details. And that's definitely one that is really close to uh, close to my heart, you know, working with schools and stuff like that. Really wish they would change their, um, you know, their opinion of, of that and gun-free zones. But anyway, I don't know. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, the next one is 79% of the killers were acting on an actual or perceived grievance, either personal or professional. In 64% of the attacks, a specific person or group of people related to this grievance was specifically targeted before the killer continued shooting random people. This is new information and is inconsistent with some previously published data. It may provide an additional method in the future to help us identify the killers before the attack. I think we need to spend some more time studying what types of perceived grievances led to mass killings and the relation between targets and grievances. The highlights I posted here are but a small part of the information contained in the report. Anyone who studies active killer events should read the whole thing. And uh, Greg does have a link to it so that you can go easily go to that, um, that article and go or that uh, study and, and read it uh, for yourself if you're interested in that. Um, maybe you, you might be law enforcement or maybe you know someone who is in law enforcement. You want to pass that along or maybe you're just interested in the rest of that uh, that study. But that's going to be over at Active Response Training. And like always, I'm going to link to it in the show notes so that you can uh, go to it and uh, check it out for yourself. All right. Our next article comes to us from thesimpleprepper.com. And this article is entitled Survival Cash, How Much Do You Need? And definitely something that uh, we should all take into account. And so I think that this is going to be relevant to all of us here. When preparing for the worst, having an adequate supply of emergency cash can make all the difference. While most preppers choose to focus on having a stockpile of food, water, and emergency supplies, the fact of the matter is that even a moderate amount of survival cash can help you in a time of emergency. Unfortunately, navigating the world of emergency cash can be a difficult chore. There's lots of advice out there that can be confusing, misleading, or simply unhelpful when you're trying to figure out what's best for your needs. To help you out, we'll run through the basics of what you need to know about survival cash. We'll talk about why you need emergency cash, how much you should have on hand, where you should store it safely in your home, and any other tidbits of information you should consider. So let's get to it. Why have emergency cash? These days, most people rarely carry cash because we can use our fancy plastic 
credit, and debit cards to make nearly all of our purchases. Let's be honest with ourselves. Credit cards, despite all the bad rap they get for encouraging us to acquire debt, are incredibly convenient ways of making purchases. But what would happen in the event of a true emergency like a widespread power outage after a hurricane? If all you have to sustain yourself financially are your travel credit cards, you ironically won't get terribly far. When the power goes out, stores, if they're open, can't take credit cards and you won't be able to get cash out of an ATM. You'll be stuck in a pretty exposed position without the ability to get food, water, or other emergency supplies. If you had cash on hand, however, you'd be set. You could buy what you need to survive or pay for enough fuel for your car so you can evacuate in an emergency. But how much survival cash should one have? At this point, you're probably saying, okay, I need this to stockpile some money, but how much cash should I have? The fact of the matter is that the answer to this question will vary drastically for everyone. However, this is, the mo- this is what most experts recommend. Have enough cash available to pay for one month of your most critical living expenses. For most, having that much in savings is a real challenge, so try to work up to your ideal amount a little bit at a time. Also, this amount is going to be very different depending on your life circumstances. Do you live by yourself in an affordable neighborhood, or do you have a family of five in a more expensive location? Take some time to review your monthly finances to determine how much you actually need in an average month and go with that sum as the bare minimum that you should have in emergency cash. Also, anything above one month of savings should be kept in the bank. No need to hoard money under your mattress. All right, so um, <laughs> let me say two things. One, if you are struggling to save up money like that, that's why you want to have multiple streams of income. That's why I wrote the book that I wrote, the ebook that I talk about every uh, at, the, at the beginning of every podcast because um, I know that that was the key to help me get better prepared is having multiple streams of income. And so uh, when I started realizing that and it really just hit me like a ton of bricks, I'm like, I, I need to let other people know that this is the way that they can get prepared. Uh, does it take a little bit of sacrifice? Yeah. Does it mean that you're going to have to do some, maybe some things like, you know, maybe you normally come home and you sit down and you just veg out in front of the television, which, you know, doesn't really offer anything other than a little bit of entertainment, but you could come home and, and work a little bit on your, you know, your side business, your micro business and earn some extra cash. And who knows what, what that would do. The other thing is there's times where people talk a little bit. I know right now the economy is looking. I mean, this has been a conversation that I've had with people recently and uh, not online or anything. People that I know that the, you know, the economy just seems to be doing so much better. Everyone is uh, seems to be, you know, just rocking along with everything. But still, we know those of us who have been in preparedness for a while, who have been looking at all the signs, nothing has fundamentally changed. Really, where we're at is it's a perception thing. We perceive because um, the stock market is doing well, which really none of us are really tied to the stock market in our finances, uh, unless you are like a, you know a, I don't know like you you make tons of money and you're a stockbroker and and you you're trading all the time. Our our finances, the people that are on Main Street, are not really tied to the stock market. 
So although that's perceived and it, or although you know the stock market is doing well and it's making money for the the people who have money, the rich people, you know, the poor the poor get poorer, the rich get richer and all that kind of stuff. So but the, the people on Main Street we're doing we're doing the same or even worse actually. Um I was reading an article today, I think, that uh, it was either today or yesterday where you know, all the 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 gains that people because of inflation, all the gains that we have made in finances have pretty much wiped out. So we're back to being, you know, being at a, at a zero balance here where we're just kind of where we're at and things continue to get more expensive. And, uh, you know, I was talking with, uh, some, some friends at church that own a business and they are feeling the effects of the tariffs because they have had price increases two times just in the summer. And uh, they're having to pass that uh, along to other, you know, to their customers, and so they're they're kind of feeling it there, having to raise prices. And uh, you know, thank thank goodness things are rocking right along. You know, people are the, the perception is everything is good, but we know that things are are not. Uh, you know, the the underlying everything is still the same. All the fundamental stuff is still the same. So yeah, all that to say is there was a time where people were not trusting banks. Because banks would shut down, and we saw this like in Argentina, we saw this in Greece, where banks would shut down, and like you would, you couldn't get your money, and then you know they weren't offering you, or they would allow you to take out a certain small amount of money at a time, and people were for, a while, and then we went to uh, negative interest rates, right? So uh, it, it was like okay, so uh, or zero interest rates or negative interest rates, so they're going to charge you, and I don't think that happened here. I'm trying to think back here. I've read so much on it. Uh, I, I don't believe that that happened here in the United States. Um, it might have been zero interest rates, but uh, definitely the negative interest rates started kicking in in other places. And so they were hoping to get people to spend their money. So it's like, okay, fine. You want to keep your money in the bank, then you're going to lose it because we're going to charge you for keeping it in the bank. It'd be better for you to spend it. But the problem is people weren't spending it. People were just you know, taking the hit and wanting to to save it because they were concerned but then you so you have all of this and then you have banks that uh there's there's always that thing that if uh banks needed to if they were going to go bankrupt they could pull whatever you have in your accounts and use that to pay out uh you know all their their debts and stuff like that so there was a, a time there where this was talked about a lot more often. Is like, don't trust the banks. I mean, what are you putting your money in the banks for? You, you know, all the FDIC insurance and all that kind of stuff. If there was a real issue, n- no, man, you wouldn't be able to. They wouldn't be able to pay everybody. Um, if and even if one big bank went under, they they wouldn't be able. To, it would it would you know it would wreck the system, right? So there was a time where a lot of people, and, and there might be a lot of people, um, I know there's a lot of people new listening to, to preparedness to this podcast, but I know that there's a lot of you that are experienced preppers that uh, might be like, no, nah, we don't keep anything in the bank. Why? Uh, there's no advantage of it other than keeping it quote unquote safe, and I could possibly keep it safer than the bank here in my own home. So anyway, um, so when he says, you know, don't keep more than a month there, there's a lot of people out there who think uh, differently, very differently about that. And so I uh, just want to point that out there. All right. So where to store emergency cash at home? Okay. Now you know how much cash you should have on hand. You might be questioning where you should keep it. Whenever you're dealing with large amounts of cash or other valuables, theft is always a concern. 
If your survival cash gets stolen in a robbery, it's not going to be terribly helpful in an emergency. Creativity is key when it comes to safely storing your cash. There are two key principles to keep in mind when determining the right location for your money. One, don't keep all your cash in the same place. If somehow your home were robbed, having your cash in more than one location will decrease the chances that it all gets stolen. Split your money up into various places in your home that you deem safe. And then two, never hide it anywhere in your master bedroom. The master bedroom is hands down the first place a criminal would go to when they break into a home. Your sock drawer is certainly no place for your emergency cash. With those two principles in mind, let's talk effective ways to hide your cash. Depending on how out of the box you like to think, you can come up with some ingenious ways to stash your cash. You could consider a classic option like a carved out book, or you could even hide your cash inside a reusable coffee can stored in your kitchen cupboard. Here are a few great options to hide cash in plain sight without anyone finding it. And then there's links to like uh, the, the Barbasol can safe, the hairbrush safe, potted plant safe. Um, so there's all those links so you can go check those out and, uh, you know, at, at Amazon where, um, you know, you have those. The problem with those is, you know, people already know what they look like or thieves already kind of have an idea of what they might look like. But, uh, you know, you definitely can go with that. And then the other thing is, is that I remember linking to articles uh, on Prepper website where people made their own uh, you know, fake, uh, fake, ba- uh, bank safes, you know, out of, uh, like homemade, uh, kitchen, uh, you know, soup cans or, or whatever, you know, so they, they DIY'd it and, uh, they look pretty good, but anyway, uh, just, you know, that's something that you could do. All right. So, uh, there is a video here that it's, uh, entitled how to make 10 secret hiding spots. And so the guy goes around the house showing you different places, kind of if you're not one of those creative types or you don't have uh, you just you like you have no clue of what what where you would want to stash money or whatever. Uh, you know, there's some ideas here. I mean, they're the typical ideas that you, maybe you've uh, read about or you've heard about before. But if you you know, you need some ideas, maybe that this can kind of help you here. All right. Continuing on. If you want something a bit more secure, you might consider a hidden safe. We recommend a fireproof and waterproof safe for storing your emergency cash and other valuables, but it's important not to keep it just sitting on your kitchen counter. Even though it's a safe with a sophisticated lock system, unless it's bolted to the ground, it could still get stolen. If you want to get a safe, you have a number of different options for hiding it in your home. You could keep things simple and hide your fireproof safe in a box in your attic or basement labeled with something inconspicuous like clothes to donate, or you could get a little bit more creative and get a wall safe, which can be disguised behind a painting or as an electrical box in the basement. Regardless of which method you choose, the important thing is that you keep the two key principles in mind. Never keep all your cash in the same place and don't hide it in the master bedroom. All right, so let me add just a couple of things here uh, really quick to this. Um, when When you're hiding it, you want to think about a place that might be fireproof because so here's the first thing if if a thief breaks in i think that they're in and out i think the time frame is somewhere between five and seven minutes right so definitely if you don't keep any kind of your 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 emergency stash in a very uh usual place like like the sock drawer 
then there's there's no way that they're really going to, they're not going to just kind of look through all the little nooks and crannies in your house trying to find it, right? So you have that aspect of it where you can hide it in a place that you know is good. And, uh, you know, a, a thief or a robber is going to come in. He's going to uh, quickly come in and steal the things where he can make a quick buck and get out. The other thing is the fireproof aspect of it. So if you can't afford uh, a safe, right? Uh, you, if you can't afford a big safe that can be bolted down or maybe even a, a safe that could withstand like your house burning down, it would suck to have money in your in, in your house, then it burns down and then you, you lose that as well, right? That would be one reason why you want to keep it in the bank. And that's one reason why banks are there and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't trust the bank, then you need to find a place that you can feel comfortable. And so you got to you got to think about those types of things, maybe inside a chimney. If you don't uh, if you don't really use your chimney, you know, you can kind of get it up there high and uh, that might help Um, because a lot of the times when you see, you know, like a fire, the chimney is always there, you know. Um, But again, that's you don't want to use that chimney. So if it's more decoration, possibly you can do that. The other thing is the refrigerator. You know, I don't uh, I've never been through a fire where uh, I've had a chance to look at the refrigerator afterwards if it completely melted down or burned up or whatever. Uh, But, uh, you know, that's kind of like a metal casing and that might work. I've told the story before when my grandmother died. Her sister was uh, staying at the house during uh, the time where they were getting things taken care of and all that kind of stuff. And she went to go, you know, to the the freezer to cook herself something. And so she was looking through some of the meat that my grandmother had stored in the freezer. And she opened up one and found all her jewelry and, and, uh, you know, some silver coins and different things like that. It wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was a place where, you know, my grandmother had had thought about to put it in there, you know, wrapped up in foil. It kind of looked like, you know, all the other meat in, in, in there. And so nobody would have ever taken the chance to do that. And can you imagine if uh, the family members would have gone in there and like, okay, we're just going to throw all this stuff away, right? And they would have thrown away jewelry and stuff because grandmother never told anybody where it was. Uh, but anyway, so th- that is one of those things. And maybe you can uh, you know, hide something very, very well in your freezer, disguise it in, in something, go buy some hamburger meat or whatever. And, uh, you know, you, uh, put your, put your money in a plastic bag inside of the hamburger meat, right? I don't know, something along those lines. But anyway, so that's something that you can do. I just want to kind of bring those, those two things out as well. All right. So, uh, some other considerations here when you're storing emergency cash, At this point, you have a pretty good idea of how much emergency cash you should have and where you might store it in your home. Before you go off and start prepping your survival cash supply, there's just one more thing we need to cover. What kinds of bill denominations you should have. This might seem like a mundane or trivial issue, but if you go to a bank to take out a large sum of cash, think 1000 or more, you'll likely receive hundreds, fifties, or twenties. While these large bills keep your cash pile physically small, they're not terribly useful when it comes to actually spending money. If the power goes out in your town or county and everyone needs to rely on cash to make all of their purchases, chances are that many stores and retailers will soon run out of small cash. If the power does go out in your town or county and everyone needs to rely on cash to make all their purchases, chances are that many stores and retailers will soon run out of small change. 
Consider this. Your town is in the middle of one of the worst blizzards in a century and you ventured out to the supermarket to get more food supplies because your family is running dangerously low. You're waiting in a long line to pick up some food, but when you get to the cashier, the total is $23.72. All you have are hundreds and the store is all out of change. Now, you're stuck deciding between acquiring more food and spending a lot of your emergency cash, which you might need later. If you had small bills and change, this wouldn't be a problem. So next time you go to the bank to take out cash, ask your bank teller to give you small bills, think 1s, 5s, 10s, and 20s, and assortment of coin rolls instead of those 50s and 100s. That way you can be prepared for anything. All right, so I'm going to disagree with the author here. I um, it, I guess it depends on how much money you're taking out. And it's also going to depend on uh, how you want to stash it, how safe you want to be, and uh, how, uh, and well, I already said the, how much money. So if you're taking out maybe $25, $30 at a time, um, I would want to stay with more like 20s and 10s. I would not deal with $5. I would not deal with $1. Because if you get to a, a place like um, they were talking about here, like you're in a blizzard and it winds up being $23 and all you have is $25 or you know $30, 20s and 10s, I'm okay with losing six bucks, six bucks and some change, right? Um, I'm not okay with having big stacks of fives and ones and trying to uh, hide them somewhere because that's you know that gets pretty big and uh, I just I, I I would not recommend it so I would recommend more staying with the twenties and uh, even some tens in there and and I wouldn't go lower than that and I definitely would not go with coins coins get very very heavy. Um, you know, in, in dealing with that, you don't want to sit there and, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to pay you $5 worth of quarters or, or whatever. Um, I would just be w- willing to, to lose a few bucks here and there, uh, you know, just kind of rounding it off. Um, but so there's something that you've got to think about and something that, uh, um, you've got to consider if you're taking big chunks of money, like a thousand dollars, um, getting fives and tens, you know, the the bank might not want to do that. Depending on what bank kind of bank you go, if you go to a small little like affiliate bank, um, you're not going to like a main bank. Uh, they don't have a lot of cash in there, and so sometimes if you go and and you ask for um, you know a decent amount of money, I know like at one time when uh, I was purchasing, making a purchase, and it was you know like a seven hundred dollar purchase, and I needed some money, and I went and they had to just double check. And that's a sad state, but that's where they're at right now. They don't keep a whole, whole lot of cash on hand in, in the smaller banks. You might have to go to the, the bigger bank, right? The, the, the sister bank or, or whatever, you know, uh, the main bank for, for those kinds of things. And then if you're listening and you're in another country, there are some countries where you get to a certain amount of money that you're withdrawing in cash and they have to, you have to fill out a little slip and uh, do, you know, kind of tell what you're using that money for. And uh, that's, it's really stupid here in America. You know, I know a lot of people are like, yeah, I hope that never happens here. But um, that that is the case in some countries uh, in, in other parts of the world. And so that's something that you need to consider. So in those cases, you're taking out small amounts of money, but you're doing it more frequently. And, uh, you know, that's how you're building your emergency fund at home or your survival cash stash at home. All right. So let's go ahead and end it here. In conclusion, you should have emergency cash on hand for when credit cards just won't work. Be sure to have enough to cover at least one month's expenses and be sure to have a variety of low denomination bills and coins. 
Store your cash in a safe place that's difficult for a thief to find. At the end of the day, it's about being prepared for whatever happens and having an adequate supply of survival cash can make all the difference. All right. And so I know that he was talking about here this. The idea here is that there is, uh, you know, a situation like a blizzard or hurricane or whatever, and society is still intact. But even if society uh, decide, you know, poops out one day, right, and uh, the hammer falls, the balloon goes up, whatever, um, there'll still be a small amount of time, I believe. We've seen this in, in other countries as well. And now I don't think anyone has ever seen a full global collapse. So, I mean, that's never, ever happened. So we don't know exactly what would happen there. But when things are starting to crash and things are starting to get kind of crazy, there's still going to be people taking cash for a, a small amount of time. And I'm not saying, but please you know, send me all those weird emails and stuff like that. Like Todd, if you were prepared, you know, I'm just saying out there for the people who, uh, you know, who have some cash and you might need to make that run to the store when things start to seem like they're they're starting to melt down. There's still going to be people that are taking, they might not be taking credit cards, but they might be taking cash. And so you'll still be able to use it in in that way. And some people will say maybe even a couple of days into, uh, you know, into a serious event, people would still be taking cash because they're not really understanding what, you know, the level of uh, the event and how bad it could possibly get. And so that's something to always kind of keep in the back of your mind as well, that uh, some people would still be uh, keeping cash because we're just we're just it, it's in our brain that the way that we exchange goods and services is using cash. And so it's going to be people who understand that, you know what, the things have have pooped out, that that green little piece of paper is not going to be good for anything anymore. And so that's going to take uh, you know a different understanding of what is happening. And so, again, I think some people will there still be there. There will still be stores. There will still be people that will take, uh, you know, money, cash in exchange for goods, uh, you know, for a limited amount of time. What that would be, I don't know. How would that how that would look? I have no clue. And so but uh, I just think that there's still that would still happen. All right, guys. Well, that is over at thesimpleprepper.com and uh, definitely it's a newer website you can go check it out they have some good articles over there as well all right everyone that is it for episode 359 hey don't forget to subscribe to the show head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com that way you never miss another episode of sweet prepper goodness and take a moment to connect with me i have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes and with that choose to live a more self-reliant life Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.